This is Legacy Battle. Make sure you hit that subscribe button on YouTube, iHeart, Amazon Music, Spotify, whatever else I'm forgetting. We're on so many platforms now. I'm Michael Adams, creator of Legacy Battle. My panelists tonight from the Gridiron Battle Zone, Brian King from Steelers Nation South, Rollo Cawthon, and Ball State Athletics, Paul Avocott. Our special guest tonight, we're joined by a former college coach, but uh, NFL coach as well. He's been with several teams, including Stanford, LSU, where he was, um, and Rice as well in college. I forgot about Rice there. And a defensive coordinator for the Giants, Ravens, Broncos, Cowboys, just to name a few of them. He's also the head coach of the San Francisco 49ers. It's Mike Nolan. Mike, thank you for joining us tonight. Thanks, guys. It's a pleasure. I look forward to being on with you. Yeah, it should be a fun one tonight. When, you, when you're going to debate coaches, you got to bring in a coach. So tonight's debate is the greatest college coach of the last 40 years after Nick Saban because, you know, there's not much point of putting Nick Saban in it. <laughs> there we go. Thanks. I appreciate you saying that. I was going to say, where, where's Nick's name in this deal? <laughs> <laughs> I think he's got I think they're going to rename some trophies after Nick yeah absolutely and as always afterwards we'll have our Q&A for uh for coach tonight so we're going to jump right into this and uh you know let, let's start it out with uh Steve Spurrier yeah in terms of head coaching the old ball coach coach from 87 to 89 with Duke where I think of him is 90 to 2001, where he was with the Florida Gators. And then he went on to the Gamecocks from 05 to 15. If you count his uh, 11 and 10 college bowl record, his overall career was 228, 89, and 2. Won the national championship in 96, played for another in 95. Six SEC championships, 91, uh, 93, 94, 95, 96, and 2000. SEC coach of the year five times. He's actually the first Heisman Trophy winner to coach a Heisman Trophy winner. If you guys can call that out, that could be a good yeah. uh, question, quiz question. But it was Danny Werfel. Won at least nine games in each of his 12 seasons. One of only three coaches in major college history to do so. Averaged more than 10 wins per season. Ranked in the top uh, 15 in each of his 12 seasons, including nine top 10 finishes, five final top five rankings, and an average end-of-season ranking of 6.8. Um, appeared in a bowl game in each of his last 11 seasons, every season in which the Gators were eligible. One of only five schools to do so during the same time period. Only coach in major college history to win as many as 120 games in his first 12 seasons at one school. Uh, overall record of 122-27-1 with a win percentage of uh, about 82%. One of only two coaches in major college history to win 10 or more games in six consecutive seasons from 93 uh, to 98. And uh, in, you know, 2005, I don't know if people remember, like when he kind of went over to South Carolina, I think there was rumblings that maybe his best years were behind him, but uh, he was still coaching strong. He took, when he took over the Gamecocks, they had some key wins, very low expectations for the football team, but they beat, Tennessee and Florida, they had never beat Tennessee, and the last time they had beaten Florida was in 1939. That was 1939. And in 2006, Spurrier became the first head coach in Gamecock football history to take a team to a bowl game in each of his first two seasons. He won his 100th SEC game on October 11, 2008, coaching the Gamecocks to a 24-17 victory over Kentucky. And in his 10 seasons as Gamecocks head coach, Spur has beaten each of South Carolina's traditional SEC Eastern Division rivals 
at least five times. And by the time uh, 2013 came around, he retired in 15, Gamecocks had three 11-2 seasons in a row. And that's the old ball coach. I think he's a clear winner here. So, so Coach, you're a defensive specialist. Spurrier invented the fun and gun. I mean, why do you think it didn't work in the NFL, but it worked so well in college? I, was it a personnel issue, or what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I would have to say it was more of a personnel issue than anything else because it is about players. And, and in college, you know, as a college coach, a lot of times you are in charge of picking your players. So no one really is, is kind of dissecting what you're trying to accomplish in that regard. And so I think that's part of it. Um, uh, you know, like I said, in, in professional football, you, you usually have somebody else. You have a general manager, a personnel director, and people that are kind of doing that. Now, some coaches have a little more say than others, but uh, – but Steve was extremely successful, as he as he mentioned. I mean, my goodness, the, the list goes on and on for, for what he did at different programs, not just at one program, and with different quarterbacks, different players. That says an awful lot about Steve. I'm really glad that you added his name into, into the mix here because, um, like I said, when you do it with as many teams as he did it with and where you have to start over again, you know, it's not easy. It's one thing when you stay at one school for a long time and you go through a lot of players in college, but you're in charge of who you're selecting and you can kind of, you see it molding and it going where you want it to go. When you start a new program, that's entirely different. You know, you starting from ground zero and he did that, you know, on a number of occasions and did an outstanding job. So, uh, you know, Steve's well-deserved to be in this conversation. A lot of times great players don't make great coaches, but Steve Spurrier certainly yeah. did. How hard is it uh, to coach a player when he's not living up to the standards that you set? <laughs> well, let's say this about Steve first. I mean, he did win the Heisman Trophy, so he was a great college player, without a doubt. Obviously, if you win the Heisman. But in the NFL, and I go back to, to as a matter of fact, Steve played for my father at San Francisco 49ers. So I have semi-history as a, as a kid watching him play for them. And as an NFL quarterback, he was more along the lines of a backup and not a star, although he did have a one season where I think he took him 11 and five and then went to playoffs. I don't know if it was 71 or two, but one of those two years, Steve was the man that, that drove him into the playoffs um, and did a, you know, did a great job there. But uh, you know, I, you, you say it right. Most of the time, a, a good coach, I would say this, a lot of good coaches were not the greatest of players for a simple reason. And that is because you have to learn so much more to do more with less if you're a less talented player. And then therefore you learn how to teach because when you're going to coach someone, not everyone is going to be at the highest level uh, skill wise. And so if you have the ability to teach someone how to do something as you did yourself, because you weren't the greatest player, it make it again, you become a better teacher. You'll find that whether it's dancing, music, the arts, uh, you know, it could be a lot of things in sports in particular. It's almost always the case. And like I said, it's a lot of times it's because as the lesser athlete, you have to learn how to, you got to learn the tricks of the trade more than a guy that's just, things just come naturally. Um, and a lot of times a, a very talented player sometimes don't make the best of coaches. And I'm talking about football coaches, not, not necessarily maybe the, the rah-rah guy or the motivator, but football coaches, because for that exact same reason, things came so easy to them, it's hard for them to explain uh, to someone how to do it. You know, I mean, if you're the fastest guy on the field, how do you tell some guy that's not, you got to be the fastest guy on the field? I mean, that's not good coaching. You know, that's not, <laughs> you're not going to be the fastest guy just because you told me, hey, coach, I'm all I'm ready to do it now because you told me. Um, you've got to kind of show people how to do things. So as a lesser player or a lesser athlete, a lot of times, that's the reason they make better coaches. 
Steve was also a starter down here with our Buccaneers, so can't forget that. Yeah. <laughs> let's uh, let's move on to Joe Pa. All right, Joe Paterno, um, 1966 to 2011. So a huge span of time there. He was in the Happy Valley. Uh, 409 victories, which is the most, <clears throat> excuse me, in, S- in FBS history. Uh, two national titles, 1982 and 86. Uh, you could make a case for a third one in 1994. They did go undefeated, but they gave it to Nebraska. Uh, three Big Ten championships, which may not seem like a lot, but keep in mind that Penn State was independent until 1990, uh, and then they joined that conference. Um, when Joe Pop took over the team in 1966, they had zero official uh, national titles. They were not really a powerhouse. Uh, Paterno built that program from the ground up uh, on the fundamentals. He was a good recruiter. Uh, he developed a great system there. Uh, which over the years it was producing great running backs and and great linebackers, uh, like power, smash-mouth type football. There's nothing flashy, but it worked. Uh, Over his career, he had five undefeated seasons. 35 of his 46 seasons, he had eight or more wins. He produced 30 consensus All-Americans. He won 17 Coach of the Year awards from various factions. Uh, he had a 749 win percentage, which is 34th all time. 37 bowl appearances, that's more than anybody. 24 bowl wins, that's more than anybody. Uh, and he had the 18th best bowl winning percentage. Uh, 25 uh, assistants that worked under him uh, eventually went to either the NCAA or the NFL as head coaches, including guys like Jim Caldwell and the current uh, Carolina Panthers coach, Matt Rule. Uh, now, we all know about the scandal. He's got to talk about it. We all know about it near the end of his career. Um, you know, did he fully know what was going on? Did he do everything he could to stop it? I, I mean, nobody really knows for sure. Uh, but that said, you know, give him the benefit of the doubt, and you really have a tough time finding a, a more accomplished coach um, in, the, in this time frame that we're talking about. He reported it to his superiors. We can kind of leave it at that for this show's purpose. But so, Coach, let me ask you, Joe Paul, I mean, I'm not sure how familiar you are with that 1994 season, the undefeated uh, the championship ended up going to Nebraska. We actually had a whole debate about that. Check it out in the archives, everybody, with Ken Dilger. Um, but he had, in 94, in my opinion, one of the best college football teams I've ever seen. But – I mean, what are your thoughts on Paterno? He, he did turn that organization into a powerhouse. It's still a powerhouse today. Um, you know, Brian, you know, brought up like a little bit about the scandal, but I, I think he transcends that at, at this point. Yeah, you know, uh, when, you, when you talk about uh, football as it is, it's the ultimate team sport. And when you talk about the different coaches, you know, there's a lot of criteria that comes into what makes a guy a great coach. Was he a great football mind? Was he a was he a great motivator? Um, was he a great game decision maker? Was he a great recruiter? You know what was it? You know that like I said, when you're trying to decide on who it is, and you could you could fall back on just all the wins somebody has, but sometimes a lot of wins also is because they were on the face of this earth a long time and coached as a head coach a long time. So there's you know it's it's kind of interesting how you have to weigh all those things, and I'm sure we will do it at the end when we decide who's the winner. 
um, of this. But Joe Paul, again, was around a long time, so he should have had a lot of wins. But I really like Joe Paul. I thought he was an outstanding football coach. And the reason I, I'll say that is because I think he was a good motivator, but he was a very good football mind as well. Some of the guys talking about were more in the CEO category, possibly, maybe not. But in, in Joe Paul's case, I thought that he was a, a for, number one, I think he went to Brown University. So he's a very intelligent individual. But uh, although he's at one school all those years, he really was a, a very bright football coach with a lot of good football in his head. Um, I thought he did a great job over the years with uh, converting running backs to linebackers. You know, they were the linebacker you for a long time. A lot of those guys were ex running backs, which me having coached defense for a long time, I would, I mean, I think he's exactly hits the mark because a linebacker is much like a running back. He's got to be able to hit the hole. So that was something that he did transition. Uh, he recruited a lot of quarterbacks over the years, made them defensive players, made them safeties. Um, because of their eyes or ability to see the field. So Joe Paul, to me, as a football coach, not just all the accolades, all the things he won, because obviously that gets him in this conversation, but he was also a great football coach and a great mind. And as we all know, you've already mentioned it, the blemish of the scandal, I don't think we can really, we're talking about who was the best football coach. So I think you have to set that aside. Otherwise, we shouldn't be talking about him at all if that if that knocks him out. But he was, uh, look, he was, he was a, not only, uh, I think he covered a lot of bases as a head football coach. Like I said, I think he was a people person. He understood football extremely well, let his coaches coach. Um, and uh, he's, he's one of my favorite all time. Unless your school is named Notre Dame, if you're not in a conference, it, it hurts you. I, I, for years, Brian mentioned Penn State wasn't in a conference. Do you know why that is? I mean, you coach in college. What's the reasoning behind that? Boy, I don't. I couldn't tell you. Well, I probably I, the reason they weren't in a conference or it was probably for money issues. You know, when you're Penn State, they got it got to a point where they said, look, if we just make our own schedule, we can get this thing right as, as an independent, so to speak. Um, whereas if you're in a division, you know, that, that division kind of tells you where you have to go and who you have to play and when you have to play when you're, and then again, when you're Penn state, even the, even the few games you're going to pick up, they're going to kind of be warm up games. You get to decide on those. You don't have somebody telling you where you have to go. Not that, not that that's, that's that way now, but I'm just saying you get to, you get to call your own shots a little bit more and trying to get into that big game at the end of the season. Well, let's move on to Bobby Bowden. Hmm. Dad gum. <laughs> Dad gum. Dad gum is right. Dad gum, good coach. So Bobby Bowden, he was uh, 73 and 32 even before he got to Florida State. So he was a pretty good coach. <clears throat> he had two losing seasons in 40 years. He had one at uh, West Virginia and one his first year at Florida State. He took over a program at Florida State that had won four and 29 in their previous three seasons. He went five and six his first season, and then he took off from there. For the next 33 seasons, he didn't have one season under 500. Uh, he had a 74% winning percentage. And a lot of that time, they were in, like, like uh, Penn State, they were independent. So they were playing some of the best teams in the country. And Bobby Bowden had the mentality of anytime, anywhere, because he was recruiting some of the best players in the country. He has four Hall of Famers. <clears throat> he had 33 first-rounders. So he was recruiting. He was playing anybody, anywhere. And he was also playing Miami and Florida every year who were perennial top-10 teams. Uh, <clears throat> uh, from 87 to 2020, they finished in the top five in the AP poll every year. 
80, that's 13 years they finished in the top top five. That's 13 years. They went 13 0 1 in that in uh from 87 to 2001, 13 0 1 in bowl games. Seven seven of those games were major bowl games. Uh from 82 to 95, <clears throat> that's was the bowl games. Uh from in 1999, they were the first team to start as the preseason number one and finish as the postseason's number one. So they went the entire entire season as the top ranked team. They don't lose a game and they dominated that entire season. He's a 1997 ACC coach of the year, 96 Home Depot coach of the year, 93 AC coach of the year, 91 Walter Camp coach of the year. He had 24 consensus All-Americans, which is more than Joe Pa in less time. Uh, 32 first rounders. He had four Hall of Famers, two Hosmer <laughs> Trafers. Two Heisman Trophy winners, 177 players were drafted under Bobby Bowden. A minute. <clears throat> Bobby Bowden in bowl games was 22, 10, and 1. Joe Paterno was 24, 12, and 1. So he had a better win percentage in bowl games. And <laughs> so <laughs> some, some yeah, just, a- just some great sayings from uh, Coach Bowden. The player is more than a jersey. Be yourself, not someone else. And then I, I love this one. And, and Coach, this is the one I really want to get your thoughts on. <laughs> Bobby Bowden's coaching theory was scared to death to lose. And he wasn't joking with that. <laughs> so, <laughs> thoughts on that and, and Bobby Bowden? Bobby Bowden, um, look, uh, I think he was a great motivator of his team. He was a, a people person all the way. And uh, football is a people business. Um, you know, they, they referred to him as, as it already started when they talk about dead, dead, gum, good guy. He was a dead, gum, good guy. That's for sure. And every, everyone had great respect for him. Um, uh, he let his coaches coach. He was more of a CEO type as far as the football goes. Um, I think he was less of a football coach. Not that he was bad. He was a good football coach, but I'm just saying he was more of a motivator, more of a recruiter, uh, getting the right people. Uh, those 14, I think it was 14, I think he may have said 13, but 14 consecutive seasons of number five or better. As a matter of fact, it was 13 at four or better and 14 at five or better. That, that 14th year, he was, they were ranked fifth. Um, but anyhow, uh, uh, Bobby Bowden, um, like I said, I think the difference between him and Joe and even Steve was that he was probably a little bit more of the CEO type, let his coaches coach, let them do the work. Um, but had an awful lot to say with everything they did. Don't get me wrong. Uh, and a tremendous person. Uh, guys played extremely hard for him. And you can't underscore that as a coach. You know, you can, you can have lesser talented, but, but if they can play above that, you know, that talent level. And he had talented teams. Um, they all played, you know, over their head for him. I think they had great love for their coach. Um, and he was a great coach for those reasons. And I don't think that that is – uh, overshadowed by somebody that knows four football. I mean, it's whatever it takes to get your team. When you're a head coach, it's whatever it takes to get your team to play and win and play hard. And uh, and he, you know, he was a great one. Brian, let me come to you real quick on Bowden. Um, so Florida now has three huge colleges of college football, but it kind of started with Bowden. Do we have Miami rising and, and Florida Gators as well without Bowden? I mean, it definitely put the, those rivalries on the map for sure. I mean, you know, with, without without them rising up, and then even recently, you know, USF is is you know 
come a little bit into the picture and Central Florida's come a little bit into the picture yeah. whenever that undefeated season. So, yeah, I mean, I think that, the, yeah, I think the strength of, of, of Bowden certainly helped for, you know, for football in the state of Florida. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's move on to our final coach tonight. That's Urban Meyer. So I'm just going to say, let's forget about his one year tenure in the NFL. Let's just <laughs> look past that. Let's move on. All right. Jacksonville would like to forget. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, head coach at Bowling Green from 01 to 02, Utah 03 to 04, Florida 05 to 10, and Ohio State 12, 2012 to 2018. Um, so I'm not going to throw out like, his win record and all his bowls like you guys are doing. I'm just going to try and prove that he's better than your coaches. And I'm going to, I'm going to start with this. So he wins a championship, a national championship, every 5.3 years, Spurrier every 26 years, Paterno every 23 years and Bowden every 20 years. So he's got you there. Now we go to the bowl winning percentage here and Urban Meyer is at 800 win percentage in his bowl games. We got Bowden at 656, Paterno at 648, and Spurrier at 523. So, superior in the bowl games. Then we go over to that season, regular season winning percentage. Urban Meyer is third all-time at 854. There's not another that's uh, even in the top 25 that we talked about tonight, believe it or not. So that is just absolutely incredible. He's got all the trophies that all the other coaches have tonight. Um, you know, by the time this show comes out, I'm sure we're going to hear a lot more stuff about what happened in Jacksonville this past year, but we're, we're only talking about college. So I think uh, I think he's better as far as his short time period. He was on a short time period compared to these other guys, but uh, he's he's got the championships. And let's let's face it, championships is what it's all about. So... Coach, with, with, with Urban Meyer, uh, there, there was some little issue about how he left the Florida Gators, you know, for there was, there was some heart issues or something, and then he turns around and he's coaching at, at Ohio State the next year. So I wasn't a real big fan of how that worked out. But, you know, what are your thoughts Medical on him as a coach? Medical issues. <laughs> <laughs> Just talk and, football and, and, and nothing else. Yeah. And, and do you think, um, you know, after what's happened this past year in the NFL, do you think he's going to get another shot in the college? Well, I'll take that one on first just because it's – you just asked. But uh, I do think he'll – if he wants to, he'll coach again in college. I mean, sure, look, look, when he left Florida, you know, there was some what's going on. And he got the Ohio State job. You know, and, and so he leaves Ohio State and then sooner or later he gets, you know, the Jacksonville and all. So, another, you know, so, yes, I do, because when people are looking for a good coach, uh, and especially if they're coming off a bad season, Jacksonville, a good example, they're just struggling to try and start to win again. I mean, pe people will do anything that, you know, they want to win. And so they'll they'll take on guys that that have some blemishes. And, and he certainly has some blemishes. I mean, that Florida team that he had. Although they were good, he had some he had some shady characters. Now a couple of them went up to New England, and, and it was a little bit dicey. Um, and then uh, so, but again, if we stay with football, it's hard to argue what Urban has done um, in short in a short time. Um, he's also the guys we've talked about from a, a position coaching standpoint, and is working his ways up the ranks. He probably had more football, um, you know, from a like an experience as an assistant coach, things like that. He had. You know, he's got more experience in that regard than, than most of the, of the other guys. Not to say he's better, 
but I do think he's a very good football coach. Um, you know, I always say this about football, two things. It's the ultimate team sport, which it is, and it is a people business. So I think what's always going to happen if you have a panel of people, whether it's us or any panel, and they're including Urban Meyer, because the people thing is so entrenched in sports and athletics, you know, they're going to shy, you know, I mean, they're just going to back off a little bit from Urban for that reason, just because he's, he's inconsistent in a lot of things, as far as people skills go. Um, and as you already said, it didn't help many going to Jacksonville and, and a lot of that stuff. I have several people I know at Jacksonville and it, I don't think it, it, uh, I don't think he shed a good light on too many people down there, but nonetheless, as football goes, like he's accomplished a lot at different places. He had to start over at a number of places and get it going right away. He didn't go to schools that don't aren't able to uh, compete in, with him from a recruiting standpoint. He went to schools that were pretty good after Utah. You know, Utah, he did a great job there. I think he went from Bowling Green, did a great job, went to Utah, did a great job, got the Florida job, then got, went to Ohio State. Um, look, he's, he's uh, as a coach, throw everything else out. out. I think he's, he deserves to be in the discussion without question. Excellent. Well, let's move into our vote tonight. Cannot vote for your own guys. Paul? Um, I can't vote for mine, so I'll go, I'll go Joe Paterno just because my late father was such a huge fan of him. Do a little nostalgia. I'll go for Joe, Pa. Okay. Brian? Uh, I mean, I, when, when I look at these guys, I, I really, you know, like uh, Coach said, you know, the, off the field, sort of stuff aside what urban Meyer was able to do you know to, to, to come in and and you know and get a, get a championship multiple schools the way they did and then he really I mean what he did at, at uh, Utah was a heck of a, a achievement as well you know kind of put that program on the map so I'm gonna go with uh, go with urban I'm gonna I give us just the, the slightest of edge of Bowden over Paterno, and I think it's because he's got the extra extra ring there. So uh, I'm going to take Bowden. Rollo? I grew up in PA, so Penn State, Shane Conlon, <clears throat> Kajana Carter. Like those are the names I grew up with. You know, I came around. So Joe Pa is, you know, is my vote. Okay. Coach? Well, we're talking football and nothing else. Uh, I still think uh, longevity is – I would have to go Joe Pa. All right. Great group of four guys now. Great group of four guys. Three votes for Joe Paterno. Paterno gets the win. Uh, I'm sure Kevin was wishing he was here. He's the Penn State grad, but uh, he would have been happy with that one. So, Brian, you got the win. Congratulations. You get first question tonight. All right. All right. Well, yeah, this first question is going <laughs> to pertain to what's behind me here. You know, in 1968, your father, Dick Nolan, you know, became the head coach of the San Francisco 49ers. Did pretty well. I mean, kept running into the Cowboys in the playoffs. But uh, then 37 years later, 2005, you were named head coach of the 49ers. Can, can you express to us, like, what that moment felt like? Because, I mean, that had to be just so cool. Uh, you know what? It, it really was cool. Um I was, uh, there was only two openings that year. I was the defensive coordinator for the Baltimore Ravens and I would interview for the Cleveland job and the 49er job. And that's rare that there's so few jobs, you know, opening, but I, I was fortunate 
to have an opportunity to go to San Francisco. It was uh, before any really decision was made at Cleveland or at San Francisco. But anyway, I had that opportunity to go there, and I, and I just thought that it was it was so like you said. I mean, it's cool is a good word. It was it was it was neat. It hit home for me. I had lived there all from 68. My father went out there from 68 to 75. I'd lived there all those years. I'd actually coached at Stanford a couple of years when I got out of college. So I was extremely familiar with the area um, and, uh, and just the history that went with it. Everything about the job to me was, was exciting. Uh, even the challenge that we had, it was a very poor football team with very little talent when I took, when I went there. Um, I thought in the three and a half years that, that we really did build up a good nucleus of players. But as all of us coaches witness, and I've, and I've been, had seen the good and the bad side of this is, is also, and that is, you know, when we left it, it was a lot better than when we took it over. And it was really, you know, getting ready to, to go to those Super Bowls like it did. But somebody's got to put that together. And I've been in situations on the other side of that coin, too, when I walk into a great situation. Uh, but that one there was, was one where we had, to, we had to build it. But it was still an exciting time to be able to do that. I've got family out there. So everything about the job was, was exciting, but also every bit of challenge um, to try and, you know, rectify. Because like I said, they had been – They'd been down for a number of years, and I think they're coming off only a two-win season at that time as well when I took it over. So, but it, nonetheless, like I said, no regrets because it was a it was a great experience. So, pandemic football. How, as a coaching staff, did you guys adjust, and and how did the players adjust to it? Well, I was only it was 2020. I'd gone to the Dallas Cowboys as defensive coordinator with Mike McCarthy. Um, the pandemic was a real strain early on because no one really knew what we were, you know, uh, what we were going to do. What was, uh, you know, were we going to have a season to begin with? Were we not? Um, you know, as it turned out, we didn't have a preseason. We just practiced all the way up until the first game and then played our opener. We played in, in, in uh, the Rams. But anyhow, um, it took a look when it was a new staff. I thought the 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 thing that was most difficult was it was a brand new staff with no preseason uh, and to get your systems in place. That's really hard. Um, it took us a good four to six weeks to get on, to get on track, which is what a preseason would be four games at that time, not three now. Um, and that would have helped us tremendously, but we weren't given that. And, and either were the other few teams that, that dealt with the same problem, meaning the other new staffs. But for us, it seemed to, it seemed to hit us much harder uh, in particular on the defensive side where we had a lot of free, uh, free agents that they came in to start because we didn't have a, you know, we really didn't have a, a good nucleus of players at the time. And uh, as a matter of fact, it turned out our best players were our draft choice guys. Um, and uh, so anyhow, I think the real strain was just the fact, like I said, there was no time to put any systems in. And so those first, that first month or so, that's what you're basically doing during the season. And, and it didn't fare well for us. I think we might've come out of it with one win, maybe two. I know we beat Atlanta. But, but we had some not-so-good defensive games. It took us a while to get back. But after that, again, we, we played some really good football in the middle of the season and down the stretch. And, um, but uh, that's, how it, that's how it affected us the most. Just was, again, our difference was new staff, new systems, and really very little time to put anything in. Paul then Rollo. Would you be willing to share, since you've, you've done both, but, you know, and even some of the coaches we're talking about tonight have gone from – college to the NFL and had really short stints and I'm, I know that there's success stories but there's a lot of um, I don't want to say failure stories but it just didn't work out and then you go back to college or kind of go away you know I know there's recruiting in college and there's you know a lot of pay in the NFL but you're the authority why is that 
transition so challenging? What, what would you, how would you sum that up? You know, I think it's a great question. And there's two things that come to mind right away. Um, and the first one is you don't have control in college as a head coach, you have control of who you're recruiting, your players, you have control of all of them. And it's a much younger uh, uh, athlete, much younger person, someone that you can mold a lot. You know, they're not, they're not necessarily kind of set in their ways as an, as an NFL player would be. Uh, so the number one thing I think would be, would be exactly, would be that would have to, would have to do with, you don't have the, the power of picking the players, you know, that you do. And the other thing is a lot of those guys that go in come from really big schools, you know what I mean? And Alabama, well, Nick has, well, Nick went years ago, but you know what I mean? The guys that are going from college to NFL are going from big programs, winning programs. And so uh, when they get into the NFL, they're usually taking over a team that needs some development, needs some, you know, they, they need some things. They need to get some players on board because, uh, you know, that's really what it's all about. I mean, you, you look at all the coaches we just talked about and look at any Hall of Fame coach, anybody, they all had players and every single one of them had quarterbacks. Uh, if they don't, then they don't get that notoriety. So it's all about getting players. And I think that when a guy goes from college to pro, he finds out he doesn't have the control that he had in college to get the guys that he wants to get because it's not run that way. You know, there's every now and then a, co a coach will have that power, but does he have the time to turn that roster around? And again, it's not about recruiting. It's a draft. You know, recruiting, if you're the best recruiter, you can beat people on five number one draft picks. Well, the NFL, you don't have five number one picks. You know what I mean? You got one, and if you're lucky, you might land two. But you know what I'm saying? You got a draft that you have to build off of, which already says it's not going to happen overnight like it might have happened in college where you could be the best recruiter and get the best players. You know, it, does, it doesn't run that way. You know, the NFL is built on parity. So I think that's the, those are the things I think really make it stressful for it. I don't think there's any doubt that college coaches from a football mind – can handle NFL, no problem. I mean, no problem whatsoever. I mean, as a matter of fact, the NFL now is it incorporates all kinds of college things. It's going back 15 years ago when they, they adopted the the uh, all the triple option and, and all that part of the game, just to just to you know upgrade the quarterback position. So again, I think it all is related to players and the ability to get them or not get them. I love that answer. That is such a perfect answer, and I don't think it gets enough respect from people who aren't thinking about it because if you started a job in, a, in an industry and it, the job you went to needed a ton of work, but you couldn't pick who you were working with and you had, were always in the media and you had a, you didn't know if you were going to get a year or two years, nobody ever puts themselves in the position of that. And I, I think your answer was perfect there. Mm, well, thanks. Brian, Paul and Rollo. Well, um, if I understand correctly, Dan, Dan Reeves, helped you get your start in the NFL uh, by hiring you on at Denver. And then also you followed him uh, over to the New York Giants. Uh, you know, we were all saddened to hear of his passing here recently. Um, so what, what can you tell us, what was it like working for Dan Reeves and, and what kind of man was he? I'll give you a quick history. Uh, when I was a kid, Dan Reeves played for the Dallas Cowboys. My father was Dallas Cowboy coach. 
my first encounter with Dan Reeves was I was in the locker room. It was about probably 1966 and all. I was about seven years old. And I was just happened to be led into the locker room because my father was a coach. I was just standing around and Dan Reeves was a player and he was up on this table and they were sticking this big needle in his hip. He got a hip pointer. And I remember watching this big, long needle go into this guy's hip and my eyes got about that big. And I'm thinking, oh my God, well, that stuck with me as one of my earliest childhood memories I've ever had. Well, anyhow, so time goes on and, uh, my father always, when, when Dan Reeves as a player went between running back and defensive back, back and forth, and when, when they weren't using him on offense, my dad would say, hey, let's put him on defense. He'd tell Tom Landry was the coach at the time. He'd say, hey, put, let, me, let me use him over on defense as defensive back for a little bit. So my father had a great relationship with him. Time goes on. I go into college. I go to University of Oregon. I play years there, and I want to get a tryout in the NFL. My father calls Dan and asks him if I can, you know, if it, hey, we give my son a, a shot as a tryout. My father at that time was at the Houston Oilers, uh, and I didn't obviously want to go where my father was. If I could help it, I'd go someplace else. So in 1981, I got a tryout with the 49ers, or when I say 49ers, with the Denver Broncos in Dan Reeves' first year. He brought me in. I tried out. I got cut, uh, with about, I guess I, I made training camp about four weeks. It was about six weeks long, maybe four and a half, five weeks. I'm, I can't remember. But nonetheless, at the end, he say, asked me what I wanted to do. And I said, you know, I think I'm going to go into, this was as he cut me. He cut me and said, hey, you know, I'm sitting you on your way, but what, what's your plans? I said, well, I'm going to go back and get into coaching. And he, and he made a joke. He said, well, you're not, you're not as smart as I thought you were. He said, getting into coaching. He says, didn't you learn from your father? Didn't you learn from whatever? Anyhow, he said, look, stay in, stay in touch, and, uh, and I'll, I'll keep an eye on you as things go. And so the next six years, I was in college coaching. Um, and uh, I gave him – it was it was at LSU. We had just won the SEC. We had lost to Nebraska in a bowl game in the Sugar Bowl. And uh, our coach at, at, uh, at the time was Bill Arnsparger. He was leaving. And I was still able to stay with Mike Archer if you wanted me to. But I said, hey, look, Mike, I would like to look to see if I can move on. I called Dan Reeves to say, hey, look, if I can use you on my resume, I'd appreciate it. He said, look, it. he said, I got a game tomorrow. And I, I had completely lost track of time. He was getting ready for the championship game against the Cleveland Browns when they had the 99-yard drive. And so this is this is the night before it. And he says, hey, look, so I got a game tomorrow. He says, but give me a call next in a week or two. And, and, we'll, and uh, you know, if we win the game, we're going to play in the Super Bowl. If not, blah, blah, blah. Well, anyhow, they won the game against Cleveland Browns. Uh, they played in the Super Bowl, played the Cowboys lost. But right after that game, uh, I just called him to touch base and say, look, I just, you told me to give you a shout. He says, I got a special teams job. It's going to be open. You interested? I said, yes. I went to work for him there uh, at, the, at the Denver Broncos in 86 as a special teams coach. Uh, two years later, I became his linebacker coach. Four years later, I became his defensive coordinator for the New York Giants. We were there four years together. I was with Dan 10 years in all. And then uh, he was let go at the Giants. And uh, and before he had gotten the Falcon job, I had taken the coordinator's job at the Washington Redskins with North Turner. Um, so we parted at that time, although I say parted as, as working for him, we did. But I had always uh, – I had always um, – uh, kept in contact with that. Dan was, Dan was big brother, the father figure to me always to the day he died. Um, and uh, we remained close all through those years. We coached together as well as when I left, um, you know, I went down to his funeral here, funeral here a few months ago when he, when he died on January 1st, um, very close with the family, Pam, his wife, uh, always remained close with Dan. Uh, my, probably my biggest regret in coaching would be the fact that I ever left him, to be honest with you. I shouldn't say regret. If, if there was something that I would wonder if I'd done it over again and done it that way, if it had been different. Although I, I, I look, I've had a, a, a lot of ups and downs, but a great career. I mean, it's 34 years in the NFL, but and a lot of it due to Dan Reeves. 
Um, but nonetheless, he was such a such a great man in my eyes that, uh, you know, when you look back on things, sometimes you think, ah, why'd I ever leave that guy? I mean, he was so good. Um, but uh, again, I had my own experiences. I had to, I had to go search out. So that's my long explanation. <laughs> You're thinking, my God, I should never ask that question. <laughs> no, no, it's great. I'm, I'm a big sure. fan. And I, honestly, I don't, I don't understand why he's not in the Hall of Fame. I mean, he took two different oh. teams to the Super Bowl, four, four total Super Bowls. I mean, I don't see why he's not. I'll tell you why. It's because the, pro, the Hall of Fame is political. And when it comes to, to coaches and things like that, Dan was never a guy to, to promote himself. He was in nine Super Bowls. No one's had more Super Bowls than Dan Reeves. Well, I shouldn't say that Tom Brady before it's over probably will. But anyhow, he went to nine Super Bowls as a player coach. Um, and, uh, and like you said, he took two teams to Super Bowls himself. Uh, and just he was look at uh, he was a great man. He really was. Uh, he was when it comes to people. Dan Reeves was the best he did by far. I never, never worked for a man as, as good a man or as good a coach. And I worked for a lot of good ones, but he was, he was exceptional. Was that me, Mike? I forget now what happened. Okay. So yeah. the, uh, and we covered your, your, no, I'm just kidding. Your uh, father was a coach. We talked about that. You've been a coach for many teams, many years. Is there a piece of advice that you have received that stuck with you throughout these years that you've kind of shared with others that impacted you. And then the, the small second part of that is, and you might've just covered it is Denver where you felt you had the most impact or where did you feel like you had the most impact at? Uh, well, first off um, the, I had mentioned earlier and, I, and it stuck with me. I say it often as far as uh, things that I would pass along when it comes to coaches or even outsiders looking at it, but, but football, when you watch the game is the ultimate team sport. And I think whether you're coaching it, you have to recognize that all the parts, especially if you're a head coach, you have to recognize that all the parts together are going to make you successful or make your team successful uh, on the field, off the field. Every position can either make a play, a touchdown or a complete failure. Uh, the other thing is that football is a people business. Uh, I mean, it's about coaching. It's about teaching. You know, there's 22 players on the field at one time that have all been coached uh, or taught by somebody to do their job. We you know what are, are they motivated to do that job or are they just or are they just doing it? Uh, a lot of times a coach has a lot to do with that. So, like I said, the ultimate team sport and people business all the way. Um, the last question you asked was what was um, I got sort of a sense that Denver is where you felt you had the most impact. But I, I wanted to see if you agree oh, with that or yeah. if you were another place. You know, I think in, in fairness to the positions that you that you have, when I was head coach, I think you have the most impact on your football team. Um, good, bad, and different. I think that's that's just by position alone you do. Um, but I would say that the the most fun I ever had with impact was the the three years I was the defensive coordinator at the at the uh, Baltimore Ravens back in two thousand two, three, and four. I mean, uh, Ed was the player of the year in two thousand four. Ray was the player of the year in two thousand three. 2002 was a transition year for us from going because we had to cut loose a lot of the guys after the Super Bowl and nonetheless. But anyhow, that was that was a really exciting time. I thought I had a great impact on it because we'd started clean slate with the exception of, of uh, uh, you know, uh, Lewis. And so but we drafted we drafted Ed Reed. But anyhow, that, that would probably have been it. It was it was just it was exciting, too. I mean, they were such good players. It was 
I mean, we'd throw out calls sometimes that I'd be going, oh, my God, I wish I needed to holler that one back. And sure enough, it'd be a great play for us. <laughs> I'm thinking, thank God those guys made it work. <laughs> so. Awesome. Problem. You were able to coach uh, uh, in, 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 in with John Elway, Ray Lewis, both who are historically intense leaders. Which one of those two, to you, I know you were a young guy with John Elway, which one of those two were more intense in their approach to the game, their, their film review, all that stuff? Mm -hmm. um, well, I was very close to, to Ray. Um, I was on the special teams and defensive side of the ball when I was with um, Elway. And Elway was also – Elway and I actually played against each other. He was at Stanford and I was at Oregon. We played against each other. I'm two years older than – than Elway, but I've always had great respect for John. He was a fierce competitor. I think that's a great comparison that you bring up because uh, John, I think, although as talented as he, I mean, he was extremely talented, but to go along with that, he was extremely competitive. And you don't, you know, almost all great quarterbacks are competitive, but to the level John was and to have the talent he had is why he was a great player. But I must say that the most talented, most, not talented, most uh, inspirational Team, talented leader, uh, intense player was Ray Lewis without question. And, and, and I was fortunate. Look, I've coached uh, a lot of great ones. Michael Strahan, uh, Lawrence Taylor, Deion Sanders. I mean, you could, I mean, a lot of great. I'm fortunate to have coached a lot of guys, probably about a dozen Hall of Fame guys. And uh, Ray, you know, I think he's – I think right below him would be Lawrence Taylor, but Ray is without without question in my mind is an exceptional leader, exceptional. Just the passion that he exuded and, and to his teammates, the leadership that he had was was just was more than I could say. I don't think anyone will match this. It's uh, it, it was it really was it was incredible to be around him and to watch him work, watch him inspire the guys around him, uh, and he did it all on his own. Um, he was he was a great great football player, great leader. So we'll get you out of here with this tonight. When you go to the New York Giants, you're replacing some guy named Bill Belichick as the defensive coordinator. And, of course, uh, you know, Reese takes over for uh, Bill Parcells. You guys inherited what, in my opinion, was an aging team. Uh, the defense was certainly on the older side. And Phil Sims was at – I think he played, what, one more year with you guys before he retired. Yes, yes, he did. Uh, how hard was that to, to – they didn't give you time to rebuild at all, really, in my opinion. Like, what was that transition like, having to take over for two legends, basically? Now, I got to ask. Now, how old were you in 93? Now, you had to be a little guy. <laughs> no, I was 93. I would have been uh, middle school. Yeah? yeah. Well, were you New York, were you New York guy? Uh, Steelers. Steelers? All right, well – But, but we Phil, went there, Phil we, Sims was my favorite – player growing up so Phil's a, Phil's a great look Phil is a great player and a great man a great leader as well he, he was uh I thought I mean although Phil had real good talent he was a great leader um but anyhow um look we went in there in 93 uh it was I think it was there wasn't there was a free agency had just started because Reggie White was on the block and blah 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 so but it wasn't like it is today where they got this mass you know exit all the time um we stuck with a lot of older guys I tell you what made it work there was a bunch of guys on that team that were there with Parcells about two and three years prior that had been to the Super Bowl. 
and they had, may have been aging, whether it was Lawrence Taylor, uh, a number of defensive players were there at that time. And all they really wanted to do was to play cover two, two gap, cover two. And so when we went in there, that's all we did. And the prior two years when they really fell off the thing was they were trying to be more exotic and do some other things to make up for what they thought was some talent loss. But we had such tough, strong-minded, strong-willed guys that that's what made it work. We just went to very basic in, in what we did scheme-wise. They played their hearts out. Uh, there was a lot of guys that, that retired after that season, Lawrence Taylor being one of them. Um, and that's why it worked for us on the defensive side of the ball. As a team, it worked because Dan Reeves' leadership, Phil Sims on offense, and a number of offensive guys would probably fall in the same bracket I'm talking about. There was a bunch of guys on that team that knew how to win, and they just wanted to go back to basics and just out tough everybody like they did with Parcells. And that's really what worked. I mean, we gave up the fewest points in New York Giants history. It still stands to this day. We gave up 12 points a game for 16 weeks, uh, played the very final game against the Cowboys and lost 16-13, and they had a loaded football team. And then lost to the Niners a couple weeks later out in San Francisco on a short week. But uh, again, the success of that team belongs to Dan, the leaders on that football team, and and just the fact that we went back to basics with those guys because that's all they wanted to do. But, man, that was a, that was a manly – that was probably the, the most mature bunch of guys I've ever been around in my life on a football field. I mean, there was a bunch of, bunch of guys that, that just had been to the battles and were just like, Let's, I'm going one more time and then I'm out. And that's what they did. And they, they played their hearts out. That was, that's, that's a great memory. Well, thank you so much, Coach Mike Nolan, for joining us. Awesome. We appreciate that. Thank you, guys. Sorry my, sorry my answers got a little long-winded. <laughs> no <laughs> totally totally fine. That's what totally coaches fine. do, man. Football, <laughs> football minds, we accept it. Football minds, we accept it. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, thank you very much. It was certainly a pleasure. Yeah, make sure, everybody, make sure you hit that subscribe button, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks for watching. Have a great night.